Hello, this is Justin Wales. I am the co-chair of Carlton Fields Blockchain and Virtual Currency Practice Group. And with me is Michael Yeager from our New York office. He's a partner and a former federal prosecutor. And today we're going to be talking about what to do if you were in the situation of having conducted a token raise, potentially raising millions of dollars, and now the SEC or some other federal agency or state agency is contacting you with a subpoena or requesting more information about that token sale. So, Michael, do you want to give a little background about your practice? Sure. Well, yes, I, I was in the government prosecuting securities fraud and um, cybercrime, and I have come into private practice, and now I help people and companies with sensitive issues with a variety of regulatory agencies, including the Department of Justice and the SEC. U.S. attorneys' offices are just part of the Department of Justice. Uh, and yes, some of the people I help are people in the crypto space. Great. Well, I think what we should do in terms of this podcast is try to give an overview of what is the mindset of a federal prosecutor or a uh, person on the investigatory side of a regulatory agency in terms of seeking more information, communicating with a business that may have um, raised a uh, significant amount of money in a token sale, and what are generally the procedures that uh, follow uh, the issuance of a subpoena, and, and what, you know, what does a subpoena really mean? What is it, um, what is it uh, uh, potentially a signal to you as a defense attorney? So when an investigator sends out a subpoena, that investigator is doing it either because they want to get information from you to look into somebody else, or because you are yourself the subject of the investigation. Uh, obviously, it's a little bit scarier when you're the subject of the investigation. Um, but there are a wide range of reasons why a prosecutor or an SEC attorney would want to get documents or to interview people. And it's not necessarily bad. It's just that there's a lot of issues you have to spot at the beginning of an investigation. And you just don't want to do this casually because there are a lot of decision points that come pretty early in the process. They, they can be asking you for documents. They can be asking you to testify. And one of the first issues is, do you want to speak to them? I mean, just to get really basic, if you think of your cop shows, you have a right to remain silent. That's true in the criminal context. And uh, so you can choose not to speak to the SEC. If you do that, that fact can't be used against you in a criminal case, but it can be used against you in a civil case by the SEC. Sure. So, Michael, I know just a couple of weeks ago, the SEC filed a civil complaint against Kick related to uh, their token sale. Um, what's the difference? And maybe can you define what a civil action in terms of a regulatory agency means? What's the difference between how the uh, SEC would proceed in a civil action versus a criminal action? Well, once the SEC has decided to bring a civil action, the SEC staff has looked into something, investigated it, and it has been approved um, by the SEC commission, and they bring a case, they can get a variety of relief against you. They can make you pay money, you can be barred from the securities industry, but they can't put you in prison. So there are a lot of consequences. It's very important 
But if someone is going to try and create a criminal contact, uh, consequence, it's going to be the U.S. Attorney's Office or the DOJ. That's really the same thing. The Department of Justice is the overall organization. The U.S. Attorney's Office is the local offices of the DOJ um, that have some autonomy but are formally part of the uh, the same organization. And the SEC and uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office can work in parallel. So these two investigations can be going on at the same time. Often, if there is a criminal case, the civil case will be stopped, will be stayed, while the criminal case proceeds. That doesn't happen automatically, but sometimes the defense seeks it, sometimes the prosecutors seek that. They want the criminal case to go first. But uh, the fact that there's a civil case does not mean there can't also be a criminal case, generally speaking. But once a civil case starts, it's a regular civil case. Uh, it's just that the government is the person bringing it against you. So you produce documents, there are depositions, and motion practice. And eventually, if the case isn't dismissed or summary judgment, there's a trial. Now, as uh, someone who may be the subject of uh, an investigation, at what point would I be aware that I am the subject? Is it when I receive a subpoena or when someone around me receives a subpoena? Or will they uh, try to bring me in for maybe a softer questioning, some general information uh, before they actually go and file a, a subpoena? And maybe what would be helpful is if you could define what a subpoena is and what does it ask of the recipient? All right. So if you get a subpoena, it can be a subpoena seeking documents. The Latin phrase there is a subpoena duces tecum, with my terrible Latin pronunciation. Or it could be a subpoena seeking testimony, which is a subpoena ad testificandum, or both. And a document subpoena wants you to give documents by a certain date. Your lawyer can call up the SEC attorney and adjust the deadline, discuss what's reasonable, hold back stuff if it's privileged, uh, meaning if you had emails with your lawyer where he was giving you legal advice. Um, testimony could be, if we're talking about the SEC, um, an on-the-record interview or not. But the first thing that usually happens is your lawyer calls up and tries to get the SEC to tell them more about what the case is about. And sometimes you're just a witness. Often they'll say things like, well, we're just exploring. You know, this is a... Um, this person could evolve into a subject of investigation, but they're not a target. Or, you know, we can't say for sure, but we really just think you're just a witness. They'll say things like this, but you also would glean what the SEC believes by what they're asking for. And some of that is you, you read this request and you try to drill down um, and you try to get more from them. And there's a bit of a dance that goes on between the government lawyer and the private lawyer, trying to find out a little bit more and um, get some direction. Is, is there a way, once uh, a party receives a subpoena, to potentially narrow the scope of inquiry or to um, set parameters for what is asked, is requested? I know, for instance, I've seen subpoenas that are incredibly broad in the documentation they ask for. Uh, such that it would be a, an incredible burden to try to produce all those records. Do you ever see that as part of the uh, the dance and the negotiation between the lawyers and the government? Oh, absolutely. There's no question. Um, there, this is a 
a process where if it's incredibly burdensome, just as a matter of strict, uh, simple negotiations, the government will often tailor its requests if it thinks that you're acting in good faith and you have good reasons for why what they're asking for is just incredibly voluminous. They don't want to have to go through millions and millions of documents if they don't have to. Uh, and so, yes, that kind of thing does happen. There can even be uh, more serious formal remedies sometimes where you do process to try to limit discovery. But the first thing that happens is just a conversation and drilling in. And I mean, this is one of those reasons why it's just such a practical small reason you want to have a lawyer doing this, not you. When the lawyer speaks, it's just a conversation and exploration. When the witness speaks, basically everything is on the record. So is it ever advisable to speak to regulators without a lawyer present. I, I know the reason I ask is uh, we represent a lot of clients, for instance, on the regulation side, uh, seeking uh, licensures from different state regulators, from FinCEN perhaps, and there's often a line of communication between the regulators and either high-level executives or internal counsel or outside counsel about, you know, talking through business plans in order to make sure that you're in compliance with um, with uh, the existing regulations. Is there ever a, an instance where if the SEC calls you up or, or sends a letter or requests a meeting that you would want to go at it without a lawyer, just uh, you know, show that you have nothing to hide? Uh, pretty much no. <laughs> um, you know, it's different when you're speaking to the SEC uh, outside of an enforcement mm -hmm. inquiry. But when you get a subpoena, in the context we're talking about here, and you're talking to enforcement personnel, no, you should never be doing that without a lawyer present. Um, it, when you get into the criminals context, it's even more sharp. Um, I mean, one thing that people don't realize, or, or, or they forget, is that the government is actually allowed to lie to you. I mean, that's what a sting operation is. When uh, the government pretends to be a, a drug dealing gang and sells drugs to somebody, they're lying to the drug dealer and pretending to be something. Uh, so a, a less uh, dramatic example, an FBI agent comes to somebody's house at, at uh, you know eight o'clock in the morning, knocks on the door and shows them the picture of someone and says, do you know who this is? It could be someone they've never seen before. It could be uh, someone they know very well, dressed deliberately differently. You don't know what you're being asked and why you're being asked it, and you're going on the record. And that can hem you in, that, that can mislead you, and you can say things where you don't remember it well, and you want to be able to slow the action down get more facts before you have to speak about something that may have happened a long time ago. So that's much more dramatic, the mm -hmm. FBI knocking on your door. But if you are in a situation where you're worried about criminal charges, you may not want to speak to the SEC at all, even though in a civil case, that could hurt you. If you don't speak and you take the fifth, they can use that against you in the civil case to prove facts. Your silence can be used against you in a civil case, but it still may be worth it if you were unfortunately in a situation where you were worried about criminal liability. 
So, I mean, this is one of these things where there's really no substitute for sitting down and having an extremely frank conversation with your lawyer and going over what you think the facts are and what the risks might be. Because a lot of what your lawyer is doing is just spotting issues and trying to see how things could go wrong. That's a great advice. Now, let's let's say that you receive a subpoena and you are, you know, you believe that either you or your company or maybe someone who you know, you know, someone within the company you work for is the subject to an investigation. What duties do you have once you obtain that subpoena in terms of keeping documents, keeping notes on conversations? Are there any obligations that trigger once a subpoena is is issued to you? Yes. Uh, You have to be careful that you're saving everything. You may decide after consulting with your lawyer that certain things are not responsive. The subpoena doesn't actually call for certain documents. Or you may say, actually, these are emails that I, where I was asking my lawyer for legal advice, or these days it could even be text messages. And you may say, okay, that's privileged. I don't have to produce it. But the first thing you have to do is save them. And so to preserve documents, people put out a litigation hold. Your lawyer drafts that. What kinds of things should be held back? And there's a decision on on who in the company should get it. Maybe you don't want to notify absolutely everyone in the company that there's been an inquiry. There can be reasons why it just makes sense to keep things tighter because you don't want people to start uh, talking and giving rumors about things they don't fully know. This is the uh, loose lips sink ship doctrine? It, it can be, and it can also just uh, can affect the record in a way that you don't want to. You don't want people to be changing their stories or something. You want to preserve documents and put out a careful litigation hold. And the decisions of exactly how you do that are very case-specific. You know, the broad outline here, you get a subpoena, talk to your lawyer, you think very carefully, you issue spot. But the details vary widely uh, depending on the facts. Now, I imagine that some of the documents requested in a subpoena ducis tecum would contain trade secrets, sensitive information about the, the finances of a company. Right. Is there any risk to the company in producing these documents that they will at some point become a public record? How do you make sure that you are not only um, uh, complying with uh, the investigation, but you're doing so in a way that doesn't necessarily damage your ability to compete in the marketplace? Well, you can negotiate protective orders uh, and agreements with the regulatory agency. Um, The government typically is sensitive to that kind of a problem. They have an investigation. They want to look into things. They are not interested in just throwing this information around everywhere. So you can negotiate legal protections. If for some reason the SEC were hacked by the People's Liberation Army in China, well, that's a different problem. But in terms of what they would legally commit to, yes, you can get protections over what you uh, disclose to people, over what you produce and what you don't. I mean, one concern, for example, is that um, people can file Freedom of Information Act requests with the SEC. And it's pretty standard to ask the SEC that they at least notify you 
before they produce any documents in response to a Freedom of Information Act request. I, I've done, I've litigated uh, several cases involving what's called reverse FOIA suits. And what ends up happening in these situations is, you know, you have an interaction with a government agency, they request all types of documents that contain trade secret information, and someone, and it's typically a plaintiff's lawyer actually, will file a Freedom of Information Act request for that specific information because they're trying to build a case. And what ends up happening is you have this interesting posture where you are now litigating against the agency who's in some instances actually on your side not wanting to give this information, right? Uh, debating whether something is or is not a trade secret under you know various state or federal statutes. So it's, uh, it can be an interesting type of procedure that, that, that comes from this situation. A absolutely. But as you say, uh, as difficult as it can be at times, and it isn't always so straightforward, typically the people doing the investigation are not interested themselves in throwing it around. There are other people who may want it, but for all the problems you may have with a regulatory agency, that's typically not one of them. They want to be informed and they want people to give them information and they're they're usually not throwing it around. Now, Michael, I, I think all of the information you've, you've given at this point is really applicable to any type of regulatory investigation. Is there anything you see as the crypto industry develops that is unique or a unique problem to that industry? And to telegraph a bit of what I'm thinking, one of the really interesting things about the crypto space is that you have a lot of companies that raised a ton of money in a way that may or may not have been fully compliant. And after the raise, they start to maybe legitimize. They start to start, they start to hire internal counsel, um, uh, uh, they start to interact more with the, the regulators to make sure that they mitigate any risks associated with that initial raise or with what they did in the earliest stages. Um, is there any advice for or, or considerations that those specific types of companies should be thoughtful of as opposed to maybe a company that has already grown, has already established before they you know, um, are subject to the investigation. Sure, the the details of of the facts always matter, and you know that particular fact pattern does have some special wrinkles to it. Uh, I do think, in my experience, that the SEC appreciates that this is still a new area that people are formalizing and growing up with. Uh, these startups are are getting more compliant. But there are always risks when you move that way. And you want to be especially sensitive to protecting your privilege and to uh, not just conducting your defense in public the same way. You will always be honest and forthright with your regulator. But that doesn't mean that you should be doing all of that formalization and new policies uh, in public quite the way that, that people might sort of have an instinct if they're not uh, familiar with very regulated industries, the securities industry, other things like this. I mean, it's not the same thing as just uh, a Kickstarter campaign or, or someone conducting a, a sort of freewheeling kind of discussion that you would have on Slack. As you're putting in these controls, you are going to have to talk to legal counsel and 
you're going to have to bring yourself there. But I, I do think that the SEC does appreciate that this is an area where there are a lot of people who are well-meaning, but less knowledgeable. As time goes on, that's going to shift. I mean, with the kick complaint, they are laying down a marker. They've been laying down markers of different kinds for quite a while now. And over time, they're going to expect a higher level of compliance. And and this is this is probably why in you know in uh, the the tomahawk uh, guidance they mentioned the Dow. In the kick guidance, they mentioned tomahawk, and they 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 are are saying if you're operating after X date, you should be pretty much aware of what we think because we've, we've issued these guidance. Whereas if you were doing something maybe in in 2015, 2016, there's a little more leeway. Is that what you're 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 finding? Yes, definitely. It's a sliding scale. And it's one thing to have conduct in the past and to show that you have made real efforts to clean things up and to, I mean, I shouldn't even say clean things up, more formalize, more to just understanding uh, that you are in an industry that that is different than perhaps you might have perceived it when it first started. But um, as time goes on, you are going to be given a lot less leeway. I mean, this is just a classic way that people think of precedent. And that's how the SEC acts. That's how American regulators act to a certain extent. You know, once you're warned, there are consequences. Now, now let me ask you uh, just um, a final question. I know there are a lot of folks out there who have received a subpoena. They are the subject of an investigation. Um, but when they were actually doing their token sale, they may have been doing it on advice of counsel at the time, it, They who may still be their attorney. They might have a letter in their hand from an attorney that says that what they were doing was not a security sale. And now the SEC is coming and they're saying, well, this was a security. What considerations do those folks have? How valuable is that letter, that opinion letter that says what you were doing was not a security when when it may well have been the sale of a security. And do, do you hire the same attorney who gave you the advice to represent you in the investigation? And what are the considerations there? Okay, there's there's a lot in there. Okay. Let me see if I can uh, catch each piece. I mean, first of all, it certainly helps if you have previously spoken to a lawyer, if you spoke to a lawyer before you took certain steps and and you relied on that. So before you had an ICO, you got an opinion from a lawyer and you relied on that opinion. That's good. What did you tell your lawyer exactly? Did you give them a really incomplete account of what you were doing that didn't really discuss uh, the most important aspects of the token and the, the analysis under the how we test of what's the name of the case of whether something's a security or not? Because if your lawyer wasn't really well informed, that opinion means less. So you may not be able to rely on it if you weren't fully uh, honest with your lawyer, certainly, or even if you were honest, but just extremely incomplete. All that stuff can help, um, regardless if you went to a lawyer and you did so in good faith and it doesn't look like you were just setting up some kind of placeholder defense. Um, that will be looked on favorably, that you were honest and you tried to get an opinion, you act in reliance on it. But whether or not this actually counts as a security or not is not always about your good faith. It's about 
the legal status of your ICO. Whether you thought you were right or not, that decision will be separate. But if you acted in good faith, that'll help you if you're perceived as acting as good faith. That will help you with the regulators in terms of what the consequences will be. Uh, so, uh, you know, the decision of whether it's a security is different from whether you acted in good faith. Um, moving on to the other part of whether you might want a different lawyer, yes, it can help you a great deal to keep your counsel a little compartmentalized. Just because you have a new lawyer, as a practical matter, it may be rhetorically easier for them to make certain arguments and to show that you are taking a new approach to the problem. There can be, not always, uh, some conflicts with previous counsel if they are deeply embedded in this fact pattern and now they're going to help try and defend you on it. That can create some issues. Uh, it doesn't always. And if you love your existing lawyer and you think you've gotten great advice, you can probably stick with them. But there is definitely some value to looking at this a new time, getting a second opinion. And, you know, unlike getting a second opinion from a doctor, that there's also some rhetorical value with the regulator to having a new lawyer sometimes. It, it can be just part of your legal arsenal. Great. Well, I think those were the main questions we had for this podcast. I think if anyone is looking for more information about our practice, the kinds of things that we uh, write about, the types of uh, presentations we, we give within the crypto space, you can go to uh, our website at Carlton Fields and search for uh, blockchain or virtual currencies. Michael, before we leave, is there anything you want to uh, leave our listeners with in terms of uh, regulators, enforcement actions, and, and what to do uh, if they are the subject of an investigation? Well, be careful out there. It is uh, an interesting time, but you can have faith that if you're thoughtful and you're careful and you talk to counsel, you're going to find a way through this. Uh, don't panic, as they say in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. This is a problem, perhaps, but it's a problem you can handle with the right advice. Well, great. Michael, thank you so much uh, for your time. Uh, this is the end of uh, our episode, uh, Why Does the SEC Want to Talk to Me? And I think in the future we'll have more of these uh, topic, uh, topical episodes about things that are affecting the uh, crypto space uh, and the interaction between law and technology and regulation. Uh, thanks so much. You've been listening to Carlton Fields' podcast series with Justin Wales and Michael Yeager. To learn more about our blockchain and digital currency practice, visit carltonfields.com. This podcast is intended for general information and educational purposes only and should not be relied on as if it were advice about a particular fact situation. The distribution of this podcast is not intended to create, and receipt of it does not constitute an attorney-client relationship with Carlton Fields. Thanks for listening. Thank you.